Hey, what's up, everybody? This is a Nowhere to Go But Up podcast, and I'm your host, Sean Dustin. So if this is your first time listening, welcome. If you're returning, welcome back. It's good to have you with us. Uh, I've got a great guest lined up again uh, today. Uh, another Clubhouse uh, guest. I am often on Clubhouse, and I think Clubhouse is a very important uh, part of what's going on today, especially for the people who are on the side of knowing and trying to educate the, I wouldn't say the unknowing, but the uh, the people that just aren't paying attention or just aren't, they're clued into another narrative. They're clued, they're watching the other movie. We've got two movies that are going on, I believe, in, in society right now. And you know, you're either watching one or you're watching the other. So uh, some don't know about the other one. That's the problem. You know, they're not getting the full information. So I met, this woman and her name, I know her as Money Penny. Uh, she goes by Nick, and she goes by I think another another name as well. And I ran across her in a in a club called the Preservation of the Human Race, and I got interested in it. And I started listening, and this woman would come on with a uh, a UK accent sounding very intelligent and super patient listening to her debate with facts that she's referring to and is putting up as she's, you know, in, in the, the link part of clubhouse. If you haven't been there, you, I can explain it, but so everything that she's speaking about, she's providing facts and she's countering um, other folks you know, who are trying to, you know, say other things. And in Clubhouse, there's people that come in, randoms that try to uh, discredit you or try to push a different narrative or just, you know, cause chaos altogether. And she did a very good job and she moderates there as well. And she does a very good job in everything that she does and she presents. And as I had started listening to her, you know, and we'll get more into that. I'm not going to go into a whole deep story. I got to save something for the, uh, for the interview. Um, yeah, it was just one of those things where I, I just, I enjoy the content that she provides. I enjoy the research that and the in-depth of the research that she does. And the fact that she can provide, she can provide receipts to everything that she says. So I, that to me, that's impressive because I'm not very good at doing research at all. And I depend on people who actually know how to do it, have the patience to do it and are willing to share it with everybody. And showing you where, you know, if, if you if you don't believe me, go look for yourself. So with that, uh, let's get to the show. I'm going to hit you up on the uh, intro real quick, and then we'll be right back with uh, Miss Money Penny. Sean Dustin spent time in federal and state prison for drug trafficking and fraud. Upon release in 2006, he had nothing but the clothes on his back, a bag of mail, and legal paperwork. In 2010, he kicked a long-time methamphetamine habit and started the long climb back up the ladder of life. This is the Nowhere to Go But Up podcast. If you want transparency and authenticity, you're in the right place. This is the Nowhere to Go But Up podcast, and this is Sean Dustin.
Hello there. Hi, Sean. How are you? I'm okay. I'm looking forward. Yeah, yeah, me too. Me too. Uh, I am a fan of Miss Money Penny on Clubhouse in the <laughs> preservation of the human race. Always coming in prepared, always uh, got that fighting spirit going. Um, I, I just, I, I enjoy every time you're on the stage listening to you. And not to mention, you got a, a, a great UK accent. So, <laughs> great British accent. Yeah. Yeah, British. I'm not, as you can tell, I'm not very uh, fluent with how to, the other, the other side of the pond uh, talks <laughs> about things. Although I, I have interviewed a couple of folks from uh, the UK. Yeah, yeah. Well, our accents vary quite a lot. Um, so I have what is known as a the traditional British accent, or some people refer to it as the BBC English accent, which is ironic because I did work at the BBC uh, many decades ago. Um, but I don't have a regional accent, whereas some people in the UK, literally, I can't understand some of them from Glasgow right up in Scotland. They can have a really, really thick accent and they talk really quickly. Um <laughs> It's not always easy, no. Yeah, we have that here too. I mean, like when you get in toward the Dakotas, uh, up in Minnesota area, you can they they have that uh, that Canadian, that French Canadian thing going. Uh, back in the sodas, I'm going from Minnesota, going to the Dakotas. They just they have, yeah, they have this this strange accent that only there, and then you get down into like let's say. Uh, I don't know. Uh, California, I wouldn't like Cal California doesn't have an accent, I don't think. We just. They're all so chill. They're like, yeah, I'm so laid back. It'll happen. Oh, yeah. <laughs> chill out, man. Just chill out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now you now you know from Cal you're from California when um oh, there's there's some some key things that, that people from California say that nobody says anywhere else. I think oh man, I can't remember what it was though. That's how out of the game I am. Well, we get it in the UK. There's, you know, different words mean different things. Um, so if you're top north, as we say, if you live top north, you talk about men and women as lads and lasses. I lad, I lassie, you know, um, but you wouldn't say that if you were from anywhere below the middle of England. So, yeah, we do. I've got a lot of different dialects and stuff. But, I, yeah, I'm lost on most of the US. I've never spoken to so many um, American people. Not that everybody on Clubhouse is American, but I've never spoken to so many American people and realised there's so many different accents because <laughs> I always try and do accents, and I'm pretty rubbish sometimes. But the ones that I do are obviously exaggerated versions. And I've been told that my only American accent I can do is sort of half Texan, um, half sort of um, Wisconsin. I, I don't even know what half these places are. I have no idea. <laughs> Te Tex Texas, Wisconsin. That's, a, yeah, be, that's an interesting barbecue. I want to come to your barbecue, but I'm going to come on my pony. <laughs> I mean, what that is <laughs> it? <laughs> I, that's a, I don't know, man. That that was a, a yeah. There's a there's a mix I in many years of watching Dallas when I was a kid. That's what it is. <laughs> oh my god, that show! I remember that show, J.R. Ewing. Yeah, yeah, that was a great one, man. My mom was was hooked on that too. And Dynasty, Dynasty was another one. We say Dynasty, Dynasty, darling. <laughs> <laughs> so let's uh, let's let's get into you and uh, and a little bit about who you are. And uh, you said you mentioned that you'd worked for the BBC uh, as a journalist. I'd, I'd be interested in like what as you're seeing 
in journalism now, what it's come to, especially in corporate in corporate media, uh, what yeah. do you, what do you think of that? Do you know the first thing I really noticed, having been on Clubhouse and having more interaction with people in the US um, that are similar to myself, sort of similar age, background, intellect, all the rest of it, is how different the media is in terms of particularly being totally mistrusted. Almost all media that I've been talking about in the US, even from maybe eight, ten months ago, before we got deep into pandemic, you know, conspiracy fact stuff. Um, it became clear to me how little you can trust most of the American media, not just because some of the shareholders happen to be big pharma or advertisers or whatever, but also because even going through some of the reports, and I like to look at stuff that's very you know, scientific, proven, because as a journalist, any journalist, you need two independent sources before you can write anything. So you find a source like The Atlantic, The New York Post, um, uh, the, sorry, the New York Times, the Washington Post, um, and then you have Reuters, Bloomberg, Wire Services. And in journalism world, they stack up as being good independent sources. Mm-hmm. But when you get to look at uh, CNN, uh, CBC, CNN, 500 million radio stations across the United States that are basically political before they've even started opening their mouths, and you have red states and blue states and mm-hmm. all this stuff, which is very dichotomous, you don't seem to have true independence in the media in the US, which is just mind blowing. And it makes me understand more why people from the US are so much more anti-media. I get it. I get it much more. But in the UK, um, particularly because of the pandemic, there's also a division gone on because they've had this thing called the, the Trusted News Initiative. I don't know if you've heard of it. And it's basically a group of different media networks and companies worldwide that have all got into a group where they have to do what they are told. And it's called the Trusted uh, News Initiative. So these people, basically, half of them are fact-checker or fact-checker agencies themselves. And to be honest, you can't trust a word that's being said. It's all sponsored. It's all commercialised. So the BBC, which is not paid for in the same way as any other media channel. The BBC is paid for by the British public. Licensed payers pay a license every year to watch the BBC, whereas everything else is is funded by adverts. The BBC, to me, has now gone, ooh, because the Trusted News Initiative has just meant it has to toe the line. Everything it does has to toe the line. And as a result, a lot of my friends that are still journalists, some of them that work for the BBC, they've left. They just cannot be bought. A journalist wants to be totally independent of mind. They want to open up investigative stuff. Um, You see Watergate, stuff like that. They do not want to be patrolled. Journalists are obstinate, stubborn. They want the facts and they do not want to be guarded by them. And that's just been lost. It's just gone. Yeah, it is. And I mean... There was a really good uh, movie, and it was about oh, I can't, I don't, I don't remember the name of it, but I know you, you'll probably know what it is. It was the one that was about the uh, the Catholic priests, and there was oh, a, a spotlight. Yeah, spotlight. spotlight. Yeah, yeah, spotlight. You haven't seen that in how long? Like I watched if, it if, again six months ago. That movie holds water. Holds water, no matter when you watch it. You know what I mean? Because it shows the passion that you have to have to be an investigative yeah. journalist. Watergate, you know I mean? too. The movie about Watergate. I mean, that is just classic. 
And it really shows that you honestly are putting your life on the line for half of the investigative stuff. And not every journalist does investigative stuff, but they want the freedom to be able to do it. And the media at the moment are basically suppressed that if you as a journalist write 600 words on what's happening in the pandemic in your town, your 600 words then goes to the news editor who looks at it, maybe changes it. And then it goes to the editor who maybe looks at it and changes it and thinks, oh, it's a little bit close to the edge. I'm not sure if we're allowed to say that. It then goes to the publisher. And then it gets to the level where all the advertising money that's coming in on that week's paper, oh, dear, well, that thing that she's written is going to really piss off these advertisers, so we're not going to run it at all. And you as the journalist at the bottom of the line that's put all the work and energy in, you might as well puff the smoke. You just can't write it. Yeah, that's... You could see why people leave. I mean, most of my friends now yeah. are freelancing. They're exacerbated. They're frustrated. They, Lots of them have just walked out, lost their jobs. And particularly there was a journalist on Clubhouse, Barbara, her name is, who is the head of a breakfast TV show um, in the States. And she was very open. She was quite well open in saying when all the statistics were coming in in the middle of the pandemic and they were saying x thousand people had cases or it was spreading in new york and the hospitals were were full and people were dropping down dead and all the exaggerated stuff that we were getting at that time she just said it was bullshit she just said i don't know how i can live with myself i walk in the morning i'm given a script i read out these numbers and i know they're bullshit i just don't know how i live with myself yeah, I mean that's that's very true. There's there was tons of stuff. I mean, and you would even see on social media where people would go down to the to those hospitals that they, that are in question, yeah, with their with their phone and live stream or you know Facebook Live. I've seen an Instagram Live where there's like people. There are nobody here. There's no anything that that you've been told is not happening. You know, then there was, uh, yeah, it's just, it's just ridiculous. And and we'll, we'll get back to this for sure. Um, so let's, let's go a little bit about into you a little bit more. I know that, uh, your bio had a lot of interesting, uh, not, not that it was interesting, but I mean, you've been through some shit. Um, (laughs) you put it directly. I like that. I like that. Yeah. I mean, just to, to, you know, put it bluntly and, and that's, you know, I think I've been through some shit too, you know, and it's good to meet you, you know. I've been and in prison as well. Does that count? Have you? A Malaysian prison. Wow. Was it uh, journalist related? Journalism no, related? No, no. It was pure Malaysian corruption. I was there working on uh, motorsport, working on the Shah Alam motor circuit at the time, which is a big thing of mine. I love motorsport. And I'd hired a little car to get around Malaysia. I was in Kuala Lumpur. I parked my car and little known to me was a big sign near my car, like 100 yards either side or whatever, that said Latonda. No idea what it was. I don't speak mm-hmm. Malaysian. It said Toboy Zone. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> so I did my shopping, got back to where my car was. Car had gone. And I was like, what the hell do I do now? And, of course, these people run up who are after a bribe or money and go, I tell you, I, t- I, I talk Malaysian, blah, blah, blah. And they said, uh, I know where your car is. I know where it is. So after bunging them, you know, the equivalent of $10, <laughs> I was, yeah. uh, you know, jumped into a taxi and taken to the pound, um, where sure enough, pretty much 
every bloody host, everybody on vacation who got a hire car was there. <laughs> yeah. So it's like the biggest, honestly, the biggest money making, I don't know, corruption you've ever seen. Scam. At the so basically a scam. Yeah, complete scam. But the, the point is, when I got there, the guy that I was traveling with at the time, he only had the equivalent of sort of 100 US on him which they wouldn't accept. There was no price thing up. They didn't tell us the price. They just make it up. And they said, <laughs> well, that's not enough. So they sent him back to our hotel. He literally opened our safe. It was the second day of the trip. And he came back with all the cash we got, which was like, you know, 2,000 US dollars. And they mm-hmm. took every single penny before they let me out. They put me in a jail, proper bars, everything, for about four hours with complete men. Just I was the only female most of these men were topless in shorts because it's really hot, really humid. And these guys are just in this five by five meter cage with me. Absolutely terrified <laughs> I am. <laughs> Before I yeah, get my that's, yeah. Yeah, that's one thing about traveling about in different countries. You you know <laughs> you don't want to go to another country's jail system, that's for sure. I used to go to Mexico all the with my mom on vacation all the time and I would go. I, yeah, she would. She would be nervous when I would leave at night, you know, not knowing if I'd end up in a jail on the way back. Um. So yeah, that's uh, always interesting. Other countries. So what what part of that do you want to uh, to to jump into? I mean, you've got I, it's it's fascinating. You like cars, motorbikes, adrenaline. That's cool. Um, yeah. you're a dog person. I'm a dog person too. Um, I've got a charcoal lab his name's riley he's about six years old labs love water as well don't they they'll just launch themselves into a pond we've got a little park next to us where a famous british tv film was uh made because it's so pretty with little weeping willows and ponds and stuff like that and uh, yeah the labs go chasing in and into the pond but i'll tell you if i go back a bit so i have um one brother one sibling and uh he's two years younger than me and he's in the music business. Um, I'm not going to say how important he is, but he is probably the second most revered and highly paid person in the record industry, the music industry in the UK. But he is very, very, he's very, very cool and calm, understated, doesn't, doesn't like to be talked about. And in some ways, it does create a little bit of barrier between us when I'm particularly doing Clubhouse stuff where a lot of it gets quite highly publicized and a lot of people want to know a lot about you because, as you said, there's a big element of mistrust that can happen Mm. with social audio, Um, particularly when you claim that you are a super, you know, COVID scientist or you're this, that, Mm. the other. And we've got what we literally call pretend doctors. Um, So many people with the word doctor in front of their name that turn out to be a yoga doctor or a doctor of pilot. Or whatever it might be, you know, they are real doctors. They are nothing to do with medical doctors. Uh, I'm a nail, I'm a nail in, doctor. You know, spider science or something completely yeah, yeah. esoteric, but they are not a doctor. But on Clubhouse, oh no, no, I'm a doctor. I've got a doctor in front of my name. Um, <laughs> so it's all about credibility. And when I grew up, there was just my mother and father who were very average, ordinary people. My dad was from Scotland from a fishing village. Um, My mother was from North England, a place where they talk about inbreeding is the most exciting thing that happens. Um, She became a a school teacher and a headmistress. Um, 
But they were both complete narcissists. They were so involved in their own life. I never had a cuddle. I never remember anything affectionate. I don't remember that. Myself and my brother, we bought our own food and made our own food from sort of the age of 10 or 11. We, de we didn't sit around a, a family table and eat together. Um, we were basically tenants in our own home until I got to about 12. And it was sort of, I discovered I was brilliant at dancing, ballroom dancing and Latin American dancing. And it was also a good way to get out of the house because the house is just a horrific atmosphere of repression. You know, there's no swearing, no shouting, no raised voices, no emotion at all. So if you did something wrong, they wouldn't say, go to your bed. They'd just be literally raise the hand, you go to your bed and slam the door. So there was no anger shown. There was no love shown, nothing shown. So I got out of the house doing these competitive dancing things um, from, yeah, about the age of, well, I started at age nine or 10. And every single weekend, all I did was do ballroom and Latin American dancing. I danced the British team a lot. That was my life. Until my dance coach began having what was clearly quite a torrid affair with my mother. And obviously, I didn't want my mother and father to spill up. So I didn't want to tell my father. And then my dance coach began sexually abusing me. And that continued for many years where I had to just hide it. I started starving myself, become anorexic and bulimic and get rid of my female body. And I was just years of terror. And my mother would force me to go to all these dance lessons and coaching things. And she picked up that I didn't want to be near this guy who was, you know, 30 years older than me, who was having an affair with her, who she worshipped. But at the same time, he was taking me into a room and doing things he shouldn't have been doing. And obviously the guilt, as everybody that has sexual abuse knows, is your guilt that you didn't stop it happening. And so that really caused the start of what became a really traumatic growing up. I would imagine that would. And sorry you had to go through that. And, uh, you know, how, how old were you when that started? I was about... 12 when he first did something that was inappropriate yeah so um, yeah that's uh you know i i now i have sort of similar uh, story to that except it's with you know my 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 i have a daughter another daughter uh older one she's 21 she had been um I I got my uh, rights terminated when she was 11 months old because of my lifestyle, drugs, and you know everything that you heard in the in the intro, right? Yeah. And so the mom just decided to to you know hey you know better better to be without you because I don't want my you know I don't want you around her in that lifestyle. And I I gladly said yes, okay, fine. That's you know I get out of child support and all this other stuff. Um, that was the beginning of my downfall when I made that choice. And so what I found out years later when I finally connected with her again is that she had been being uh, sexually abused from the time she was 11 until she was, I believe, um, 14 or 15. And it was with her stepdad, who is one of those yogi kind of guys, right? And, you know, spiritual guy. Yeah. And when... In a trusted, trusted position. 
Yeah, there's a lot of that. You know what I mean? There's so much of that that goes on. That's often what it is. And that's why, you know, in in sport, and obviously I was basically in a very high-level sport. Um, I was training to be fit and keep my weight and my diet all under control to be really good at what I was doing. And, I, you know, I'm very competitive. But um, you get a reverence and you look up to your tutor. You look up to somebody who is telling you how to win championships, who's telling you how to better yourself. So you look up, you aspire to them. And that's sadly why, you know, a lot of abuse happens in families where you look up to your uncle or aunt or whoever it might be, or you have a trusted role. We've got, you know, there's a big footballer um, sexual abuse thing that was discovered, you know, in uh, gymnastics, lots of girls, Mm -hmm. uh, tennis coaches, you know. And I'm very glad that it's become easier to talk about I'm very glad because I know a lot of what I went through was me trying to hide Mm. everything and not having anybody to talk to about it and at least now there is a recognition and there is a helpline and there is a support network particularly for kids who have nobody to talk to so I'm, I'm glad that happens yeah and for those of you who are watching and if you're getting triggered by any of this that we're talking about and those that are listening, uh, the National Sexual Abuse Hotline number is 1-800-656-HOPE or 4673. That's 1-800-656-4673. And that's the National Sexual Abuse Hotline. So... I would don't want to talk about things and then not give somebody somewhere to go if they, yeah. uh, you know what I mean? I'm trying and to in, do but In the UK, you know, if anybody is watching and worried, maybe about spotting it in your own children. Because if you think I, as a child, would have been showing some different behavioral signs because my parents were very aloof and narcissistic, they didn't pick up on it. But the fact that I lost two stone in weight within a very short period of time, I was vomiting up into a sink. The time that they first found out about it was four or five years into it when the U-bend in the sink in our house was so full of food, we had to call a plumber in. He discovered Mm. that years and years of vomiting food had stopped all the plumbing. And that's the only way they discovered that I was in a bad situation. Because I radio in the bathroom and I vomited and you know I just hit food that occasionally my mother would you know come in and get some sweets or a biscuit and I would just hide them I just wouldn't eat them and I was trying to get rid of my body so I wouldn't be attractive in any way to anybody because I hated the abuse that was being done to me yeah that's gonna be horrible now what was that conversation like when you had to explain you know what what that was I just lied. Most people do lie. You know, people that use drugs, people that go through trauma, people that are being abused, you lie. Um, And you lie for many, many years. And I lied at the time the U-Bend was found. And I simply said I decided I was vegetarian and didn't want to eat anything that my, uh, you know, I had to eat that was containing meat. So I just lied. And it was 14 years later. I was 21, third year at a university. The first time I told anybody, it was my father and my brother, what had been happening. But by that time, I'd had three serious suicide attempts. I tried recreational drugs. I had become 
very, very different in terms of, I became a goth. I don't know if you know what a goth is. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I dress in black all the time, very heavy black eye makeup, really heavy black hair all over my face. I would just be adorned in black. I wanted to be in the shadows. I didn't want to be seen. I didn't want any attention. And I went to a very left-wing university um, which was all about anti-apartheid and I became part of this um, very media, left-wing media sort of organisation, which ironically then led me into the BBC. And I worked with a, a fantastic Nigerian Rastafarian guy called Dotton Adebayo. He is now an MBE. He's got a title in the UK and he's <laughs> Radio 5, BBC Radio 5. And him and I, the bonkers Rasta and me, became sort of, uh, you know, mates in conspiracy of you know revealing stuff mm. and even today i still speak on his shows in the bbc <laughs> that's awesome yeah so how did you uh how did you how did you turn that around um you know what did it what did it take for you you know everybody's got their own you know sort of bottom in, in life from whatever trauma that they've been exposed to or you know have had i crashed i think you have to go through a complete crash um, I'd been through the suicide attempts. I'd been hospitalized. I'd had my stomach pumped out. I'd spent three Christmases, Christmas Day, New Year's Day, Boxing Day, on my own, three years running, hiding in a student union dorm where all the students had gone home. And it was just me and security guards. And I was the only person who didn't have anywhere to go because by this time I'd completely cut off all contact with my mother who the day I gave up dancing to stop it happening, she said she'd never, ever forgive me. That was her words. My father and my brother didn't understand why I wouldn't speak or have anything to do with her. So they rejected me. So I was at university. I had to work all the time to raise my funds to pay my bills at university. And I pretended I had people to go to every Christmas. But the third Christmas, I popped back to see my brother briefly and his landlord raped me. His landlord, my brother's landlord, raped me on New Year's Eve when my brother went out to some sort of rave. And I got into my car at about midnight just after it happened and drove back. It was about a four hour drive to the university student union. And then I took the biggest overdose that I never should have taken. And the security guard found me in a pool of blood, sick, vomit and pills two, two or three days later, by which point my kidney and liver, I was just hemorrhaging blood. And I think when I got out of that, I just realized I had nowhere else to go. I had to start talking to somebody and I had to confess what I was hiding. So you have to hit rock bottom, I think, to get out of it. God, man, that's, that's so, uh, again, you know, sorry that you had to go through that. And let me hit that, uh, that, uh, number one more time up there. Um, it's 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 crazy what the mind does, right? To to get away from the pain, right, or the yeah. shame, or A the lot guilt, of guilt as well. Yeah, 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 guilt, the pain, the shame, the guilt, all of it wrapped up. And you know whether it's um, it's just that trauma thing that that we can't get out of, and and that causes all of these adverse events right and you can call them you know because it really is just symptoms right they're just symptoms and of things uh that, are, that have happened and 
you know, I, I often say that the, uh, uh, that Trump, you know, that the, the gateway drug isn't, isn't marijuana. It isn't cigarettes. It isn't alcohol. It's untreated trauma. I totally agree. You know, and that's what we see in our prisons. That's what we see in our homeless. That's what we see everywhere where you find untreated trauma. It just spins out of control until you figure it out. And some people don't ever get a chance to figure it out. You know, you're lucky that you didn't get too far to a point when you were, you know, was it bulimia, bulimic, or is that what they call that? Bulimia and anorexia, both, you know, they're effectively self-harm, they're self-punishment. You hate yourself so much. Mm -hmm. You don't care if you starve and, and that you look, you know, disgusting. As long as you're thin, you're not female, you're not attractive, and you're not an abuse victim as much because suddenly you are not a pretty little girl with, you know, a small sort of figure that is, you know, bumpy in the right areas, let's say. So I just wanted to be somebody that I wasn't to change my outside skin, to make myself as unattractive and unwanted as I possibly could. So now you, you've, uh, that's coming to the light now, uh, what happened. And I yeah, imagine that, that... Got involved, uh, the CID, all this, I mean, the guy's quite high profile, you know, the uh, programs they do, Dancing with the Stars, and they have an equivalent program in the UK. And the person that abused me obviously abused others, was very high profile. And when it got to the final chance to get him imprisoned, he was arrested. But the reason he was never charged is because at the last moment, my mother <coughs> with the truth. My father was interviewed. My brother was interviewed. They both realized everything had been going on. All the evidence was collected. He would have gone down. But then when the police went to interview my mother, she lied about absolutely everything and said it was all made up and defended him over me. Wow. Well, that, that, how did that betrayal feel? It was the end. I remember sending a little message. We hadn't been in touch for 20 years or so. And I sent a little message just saying, Mum, I will never forget what you did, but I will forgive you if you help me this last time. I just have to have justice. Just please do one thing for your daughter. Tell the truth and I will forgive you and love you all over again. And she didn't. She stood up for him and left me. Oh, sorry, man. Yeah. So the thing is, from this abuse, sadly, I'd also been unable to have children. I'd been abused to the extent I had to have a full hysterectomy in my 20s. So I lost all my female organs, my ability to have kids. And my only experience of parents was that the one thing parents should do, in my eyes, is look after their children. And my experience of parents was that the last thing they wanted to do was look after me. And when my mother finally did that and refused to stand up for me and she protected this man that had been abusing me, that was a final straw. But then more recently, in the last two years, when I came down with all this COVID stuff, at one situation, they needed a blood test from my father because they were looking at what was wrong with me. Um, 
cancer, COVID. They, they didn't know, but they had lots of suspicions. They needed some blood. My mother's died several years ago, so they asked my father. My father refused a blood test to save my life. That was last year. And all this because of something that you were victimized by and something that happened to you. I just don't, I don't have parents, I don't think, in a way that I don't have anybody that stood up for me and protected me. And I think that's why in some ways this money penny on Clubhouse is quite defensive and can be a bit scary because nobody, <laughs> nobody ever stands up for me. So I have to get Miss Moneypenny to stand up for me because nobody else does. <laughs> yeah. No, that ma- that makes a lot of sense. Uh, you know, when you, when you now hearing the, the background and, and contextualizing, you know, that when you explained it earlier, it, it didn't, I could understand it, but it didn't make as much sense as it does now. Let's just say that. So, yeah, that's uh, that that's quite the uh, quite the the trauma there, man. Now, are you involved in any kind of um, like tr- child abuse, trafficking, human trafficking causes, or or anything like that, or you just? Um, you see, after that, I went on. When I lost the ability to have children, I thought I never had anything good about me. But I realised I did have a brain. So I went into the city and for 20, 30 years, I was probably one of the most highly paid um, investment economists, you know, on the trading floor in London. I was well known. I became the only female director of a big dot com PLC I was in fintech. I was the youngest and only female director of big companies that you know were well known. I became very high profile, and I kicked ass basically. And I started to like myself a bit for doing it. Um, but I always had a lot of guilt, and I didn't do well in relationships. I wasn't liked. Women were not liking me at all because I was fairly attractive and kicking ass in the city and making a lot of money. But I used that money to protect my brother, who was going through a sort of, I'm going to say a drink drugs thing. That's all I'm going to go into. He was going through a hard time. I sorted out his accommodation. I bought him stuff. I bought my father a car, uh, helped my father pay the mortgage for several years. Same with my brother. So my only two you know, living relatives um, but I didn't have time for friends. I just was work, 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 career all the time. And it was a distraction, really, from everything else. But it was something that I was good at. I liked doing it. But then when I left London and came here to Cheltenham, I wanted to become completely low profile. I didn't want people to know me. Um, I wanted a new sort of start in life. And when I got here, I wanted to leave all the crap behind type thing. Um but unfortunately, the soap opera lifestyle that I have, um, it turned out that my investigative reporter thing meant I was in touch with some very well-known criminal groups, some very well-known convicts, some very well-known uh, frauds, uh, money launderers. I knew a lot of bad shit, let's say that. <laughs> and uh, I started to just come across these stories, which were really bad shit. Um, which meant I sort of did a bit of freelance journalism as well. 
and became a bit of a, I don't know, whistleblower. That's mm. the word to use. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wow, man, what a life. That's, uh, you know, I know, I know a few people, other uh, folks, uh, content creators from, I don't know if you would, Sonia, uh, oh, God. I can't remember what her last name is. She used to. She was. Do you, does Sean Atwood ring a, ring a bell to you? That name? Yes. Now uh, he had a show with her, Sonia Paulson. I think it is. Mm. She's a, another journalist that's into a lot of that stuff too. Uh, the, I followed them for a while. It's like um, the Maxwell thing came up recently, and I know somebody connected with it. Mm-hmm. So I kept getting these messages on Clubhouse of people going, "Do you know such and such?" Well, I do. I do know her. And yeah, I went to a party where, you know, Epstein was there and Prince Andy was there. And, you know, because that's the circles that I moved in years ago when I was in mm-hmm. London. Um, but the media that happens on Clubhouse, you get two groups. You get one group that say, she's making it up a sort of shit. She's not believable. She's fantasy. And another group that say, she's a spy. And I literally <laughs> got messages saying, she's a spy. She's not who she says she is. She's not even British. She doesn't have long COVID. She's not Nick, you know, Moneypenny. And yeah, yeah, yeah. it's like, no. When I've gone through life not being believed so much and held so many big secrets to protect my mother and father and bloody rapists and child abusers. And then I'm the one that gets accused of being an undercover spy with a manipulative reason for being on Clubhouse that I'm not who I say I am, that hurts. Really yeah, hurts. but you but you also too you gotta understand is that when you can command a room like that, right? Yeah, people often <laughs> pe- pe- people will often feel a threatened, be yeah. hate you got your haters. Uh, and folks that, you know, wish that, you know, when they, if they go and they look at your, you know, snap on your profile and they see how many people you have following you up, oh, there's another reason, you know what I mean? That's just human nature. Okay, yeah, I get it. But God, it's, it's a hard journey. I was on stereo before I was on clubhouse, which is another social app. And I was universally hated within about three weeks because I was British <laughs> and I was white. Those are the only two reasons. And that that was really hard knocks. I really found that difficult. Really found it difficult. Yeah, I it's I I I, I tr- went on there a couple of times on stereo. It just never it, it didn't click for me like Clubhouse did. And I, maybe it's t- it was timing. I think it was timing. I had Clubhouse was right at the end of what it was twenty twenty uh, December when I got on. So it's just sort of the tail end of being locked down. I think I was still on disability. So for another four months, I was able to dive into it. And I got to tell you, man, some of the, some of the rooms that I I was in, you, especially some of the, like when you get into real conversations, just like we're having right now, right. You don't up until clubhouse, you, you don't see conversations like that. You don't talk about things like that with your friends like you, like me, I never got deep like that with, you know, people that are around me, mm. but I can do that on clubhouse. It's weird. Maybe I it's know, because I'm over trusting of people generally, you know, and so many people have said this, I expect people to be genuine. And throughout my life, 
I've been ripped off, <laughs> taken advantage of by so many people because of that. My joke is the, the actual truth. I had a Tinder date just before I got ill with COVID. I'd come out of a nine-year relationship. I had a Tinder date and I chose this guy because he was working in Formula One, which is my big thing. I love motorsport. So I went out for a date with this guy. And on the second date, he stole my car, which is an old vintage Porsche. Mm. <laughs> well, Only I, me, eh? Only me. I guess he was a different kind of Formula One driver. He's usually a getaway driver, well, not a <laughs> not a racing car driver. He was working for a big company. He's meant to have checked him out with due diligence. Turns out he was a known criminal who'd done car theft for years and years before he went into Formula One. So now he's banned from having any jobs in the whole of motorsport. <laughs> but I'm the one that had to find it out. <laughs> yeah, that, 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 that is crazy. Um, so let's let's talk about long COVID. We're going to shift over into long COVID and kind of what is that? Explain what that is. So it's a condition which is initially brought on by catching COVID. But for some people that catch COVID, they don't just have an illness that lasts seven or 10 days, which could be obviously COVID, particularly in the early days, it could be mild and you could feel very rough and very much fluey and heavy and your joints ache. But after seven or 10 days, you start to feel better. For many people, it would be very severe respiratory. You'd end up in hospital, particularly if you were older or had an underlying illness. And then there's a group of people that, got really ill and never really got better, that things didn't properly go away. In fact, they kept coming back and more stuff would come back. So for me, uh, the first few days were severe fever, sweats, um, obviously loss of smell and taste, had no appetite. But then I started to get all these infections, literally from here downwards. So my eyes got infected within day two or three. I had pink eye. I had a nasal sinovitis. I had um, salivary gland infections, gum infections, throat infections, chest infections, kidney infections, urinary tract infections, all within about three days. My body was a growing infection. And within two more days, I couldn't walk. The pain in my joints was so severe, um, I couldn't fist my hand put it in a fist like this I couldn't move my joints were solid and a raging heat but I felt freezing cold I was physically shivering struggling to breathe gasping wheezing like asthma um but unfortunately or fortunately when I got ill it was Christmas day December 2019 and at that time I was in St Lucia because I'd come out of a nine-year relationship that ended abruptly in November 2019. And I got this sort of 10-day holiday sorted. So I, I was told I had swine flu because nobody really recognised it. And the local people in St. Lucia said, oh, you got swine flu. It's really bad this year. We've had lots of people being really ill with it. Um, but at the time, you know, obviously nobody knew. Nobody had even heard of COVID. Yeah. So I got back to the UK um, and in order to fly, I had to sort of cover everything up about me being ill and pretend to be thoroughly well to get on the plane, even though I'd been in bed solidly for five days, um, just, you know, unwell, very unwell. And I didn't want to go to a hospital in St. Lucia, because if you know anything about St. Lucia, its hospital is not great. 
So I got back to the UK and initially I felt a lot better. But I think that was the relief of getting home more than anything. And then I started to come out in this weird rash. Um, it started on my chest and it started spreading rapidly. And it looked like chicken box, um, but it was coming out everywhere on my arms. And I noticed my fever was getting worse. When I got home, I'd got a thermometer and I'd got a um, blood pressure monitor and a blood oxygen monitor. And my blood oxygen levels, which I knew were meant to be between 95 and 100, were down in the 80s. And when I left them on when I was sleeping, they'd go down to 78. Um And this was late January. So I phoned my GP. They'd said, well, if it's swine flu, you can't come in because it's highly infectious. You'll have to wait 15 days. So I didn't get in to see a doctor until very late January. And I'd sort of been staying in the house in bed because I'm not feeling so well. Um, And then when I went in to see the doctor, they just looked at me and said, that's probably not swine flu. Did you have it diagnosed? And I said, well, as far as I know, I was in St. Lucia. How do I know? So they'd written down on my report, which I didn't see till many months afterward, they'd written down severe respiratory illness, unknown, um, and they'd put uh, macropapular rash, and they'd written down my symptoms, joints all swollen up, uh, difficulty breathing, all this sort of stuff. And they just did loads and loads of blood tests. Um, And all the blood tests um, came back, and a lot of them were really abnormal. Like, your leukocytes shouldn't be that high, and, and your fight shouldn't be that high and your CRP is really high and this is really high and and it was just abnormal really abnormal they had no clue long story short I at the time uh had some money because I'd just come out of work and so I paid to see a private hematologist a blood specialist and a private rheumatologist and I saw both of them and they did more and more tests and the only thing they could find was possibly something called um M-U-G, which is um, a myeloma, a blood cancer, early stage thing, um, because they'd found kappa and lambda and M-spike proteins and all these weird things in my blood that suggested I'd probably got this early stage of this cancer, in addition to whatever, you know, uh, disease or respiratory thing I'd got, they thought I'd got this cancer thing. And then the country locked down. And these pictures started to come on television, which I vividly remember of Italy and Wuhan, where you started to see the patients. And when I saw the patients, I saw me. I saw their swollen joints. I saw their face being grey and scrunched up, their eyes being pink eye infected. Um, The boiling hot feeling like a migraine where you can't stand bright light. And I saw in them all my symptoms but I just thought it was impossible. How can a girl in England who's been on holiday for a week have COVID when it's in China? It's not even near here. Um, so I didn't really think that much of it. And there were no tests, no antibody tests or anything. Um, and I just sort of thought it must be the cancer that is the most important thing. But at that point, we were shut down. I was on my own. And all I could do was think, I'll go back to my studying because I'd been very academic as a kid. And I pulled out all the science, all the medical books. And then obviously with YouTube, I went on to John Mayo, uh, the John Hopkins Clinic, the Mayo Clinic, all these things. And I started 
really studying hard all the immunology, virology, epidemiology, everything I could find. I read everything I could find on the COVID, what was happening. And then I started to connect through social media, people in the US and Canada particularly. And because I've been a journalist, I went on radio shows where people called me in because I was ill and said, you know, is there a chance you could be this, that and the other? In the end, this weird thing happened where my blood was sent to Porton Down, which is the government's security, high security lab in the UK. They sent my blood to this high security lab because the doctors, the specialists said she's got some weird probably a tropical disease. She's probably been bitten by a mosquito, all this sort of stuff. Anyway, it came back. I had positive yellow fever. Wow. Yellow fever. I mean, <sighs> there's not been a case of yellow fever in the whole of Europe for five years. And I had yellow fever on my blood. So they went back to the government laboratory because it's it's a declarable disease. It's a mm. high-risk disease. And they tested it a second time and it came back positive for yellow fever again. And so... I was convinced, as were some of the doctors, that mysteriously I'd suddenly got yellow fever. Now, just as I know now, I did have yellow fever, but it was reactivated because it was a dormant virus in my body that had been reactivated by SARS-CoV-2. Because now we know SARS-CoV-2 itself is a pretty horrendous virus, but what is bad about it, and the reason you get all these freaky symptoms that nobody understands And the reason you get ill, not just for 10 days, but some people get ill for months and years, like me, is because this virus goes into your body and all the other viruses you've ever had as a child, all the strep throats, bacteria, fungi, athlete's foot, anything you've had before, is basically woken up again by SARS-CoV-2. And so you manifest the symptoms of about 10 different viruses and bacteria all at once. Hence why people are getting uh, sort of, you know, sclerosis, neurological problems, massive rashes, um, shingles, because they had chickenpox as a child, and it's woken up, it manifests as shingles. And now we know all of those crazy symptoms that I had, not being able to walk, not being able to do this, my voice changed, um, all these infections, were basically all the childhood things I had, because I was pretty shitty ill as a kid, as you can tell with all the traumas going on, (laughs) whatever, I was not a healthy kid, all these horrid things I'd had all went bang and all woke up at the same time. And this manifested in long COVID, which is basically a condition that over 5 million people have in the UK, multi-million worldwide, that is still not completely understood and recognised, which means a lot of people have got severe ongoing disablement. I wasn't able to walk for 18 months. I wasn't able to leave the house. Breathing is still difficult. If I do something like going to the kitchen to empty the bins, I can be out of breath in in 10 minutes and gasping to breathe properly. Um, My joints swell up. Um, I've now been uh, confirmed. I've got rheumatoid arthritis. I've obviously got this this cancery thing. I've got multiple organ damage. I became part of an Oxford University trial because I was one of the first people with it, where they found I got mitral heart valve damage, lesions on my liver, things on my kidneys, and all my organs have been subjected to damage, which is permanent, pretty much, you know. Um, and that's and that's all from the first variant, right? The first variant that was released. Yeah, they call it the wild version, the first version. Yeah. And that, but 
somebody said something to me where I heard a, I heard a theory and it made a lot of sense to me that the reason why so many people died in the beginning and so many people had so many problems with this thing, because it was the first time it had been introduced to this, uh, to us as a species. Right. And so the longer that it goes through, right. So the first, the first wave, you know, knocks a bunch of people out. And then as it's, starting to i guess it would be almost kind of like having a building up a tolerance to it right your your society starts building up a tolerance to it and it's not as bad as it as the time goes on and that made a lot of sense but i mean like as, as far as like medical just stuff i mean i have no idea just from what i've, I've listened to and people that i've listened to like mccullough and uh you know farid and you know all of these these doctors that are on the I guess you would call it the alternative spectrum, <laughs> uh, you know, <laughs> alternative I mean, this, to... This wasn't the first time we'd seen a coronavirus in humans because we'd had SARS-CoV-1 and MERS that were both from the same sort of family of viruses, albeit MERS was from a camel mixing with the tree bat or, or the bat. I mean, bats are known to carry massive amounts of viruses and not exhibit symptoms. And that's been known for decades. Mm-hmm. And when we had SARS-1 and then we had MERS, ironically enough, the people that recovered from that first SARS and MERS have a backup against SARS-CoV-2. So there are some people that genetically had MERS or SARS, albeit, you know, they'd be quite old now, that haven't been at all affected by any of the COVID initial viruses or variants. And some of them, because in the coronavirus family is also the common cold, the thing that most spreads worldwide that we have no answer for. There's no treatment for the common cold because it's such a complex virus. Um, But some strains of the common cold, because every virus has, you know, thousands and thousands of strains. If you had a particular strain of the common cold, you might even have protection against COVID. That's, you know, we've learned so much about it. And the point is, a lot of people died unnecessarily, sadly, because initially doctors thought it was a respiratory virus. They thought it was all about the lungs and struggling to breathe. Now we know that's not the case. But, you know, people were shut onto ventilators and put in hospital and breathing apparatus. And they were dying. More were dying that went on apparatus and breathing apparatus than we could possibly have known because it wasn't just a respiratory virus. It's actually an inflammatory virus that is a multidiscipline virus that affects the organs, that affects the brain. It crosses the blood-brain barrier, this virus. So you get neurological effects. You start off losing your taste and smell, but it's nothing wrong with what's actually in your nose or your mouth. It's in your head. The reason I started losing my eyesight and my hearing, I was bleeding through my ears within by February. Um, I was having massive inflammation of my brain and your brain chemicals stop being produced in the right way. The regulators in your body, uh, the inhibitors, the ACE inhibitor, the different regulators that normally would tell you how much salt and sugar and hormones, you know, hence women losing periods, hence uh, men having low sperm count, hence some people still with long COVID today, not being able to walk at all um, because they've got partial paralysis caused up here. A lot of referred pain, but there's actually nothing wrong with their hips, but they have so much pain in their hips because something's wrong up here. This is, you know, just the most amazingly complex virus. And sadly, some people have just never got over it. And still no so, cure. 
when you explain it like that and you you say everything that that happens i mean it, with this virus it sounds an awful lot like a weapon it certainly does i mean you know that would be the perfect thing i mean you wouldn't wouldn't that i mean if you were to release this on on an enemy or or you know somebody that you didn't like or you know maybe a country that you didn't want to compete with um yet you would just release this and it pulls everything out that ever was wrong with you. So um, I don't know, man, it, it's either, it's either a way and, and this isn't backed up by anything. And this is my, my personal opinion, not miss money pennies. Um, if it was a weapon, perfect. You know, you're going to get somebody, you're going to get what you need out of it. But if it's not a weapon, then it's, and it, and if it was manufactured and if it was made and created in a lab, why would a pharmaceutical company want to do that? And it would make sense because now all of the problems that you have, not only are we going to get billing codes out of you um, for all of the different times that you have to go into the, the, to the hospital, right? Which is always a cha-ching, uh, unless you're in the, in the, the, the NHS, uh, but if you're here in the United States, it's a billing code. Every time you step foot into a hospital or, or get examined or uh, have a phone call or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. And so when I start looking at this and I look at things from like a criminal aspect because I, I was a criminal um, and I start looking at all of the ways that I could make money off of or can money can be made or the, or that they're making money off. I'm like, God, they're, they're getting it at every angle here. You know, they're like billing code. How many they are there? Now, look, just look at the virus itself and look at vaccine production and medication production. That is big pharma making billions and billions. But also, for example, a little example, all the testing kits worldwide, all the things that are shoved up noses, all the little Mm -hmm. things that you drop in are all made in China. The Chinese factories with these fantastic workforces that can turn around billions and billions of PPE and testing kits. The UK paid £3.2 billion for testing kits, the first round. We're on to about round 10, 15 of testing kits, all bought directly from Chinese companies. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I, I, my camera is sitting on a Binax now testing kit (laughs) Uh, made by Abbott brand new. And the reason why I have this testing kit is that I got informed yesterday that my ex's boyfriend tested positive for COVID. Right. And so I guess he was around my daughter before I, I picked her up and he didn't get tested until Saturday and I didn't find out till Saturday evening. So I, had a test here and I gave it to my daughter, which wasn't very easy. Um, (laughs) She didn't like the first test she had to take when she went to Maui to fly. So I I had to to initiate that and that wasn't very much fun. But here's my point. She went and got a, a test kit to test herself. And she said, well, you know what? Why don't we just give you a test? See how accurate these things are. Guess what he tested? Negative. Yeah. Which is a good thing for me because she is a 
I trust the science person. And my daughter's four, which means she's going to be five, which means she will be eligible for that child one. And my ex wanted to, he was one of those ones that wanted to do it. Mm. And no matter what I, what I try to point out to her or, or send her, I'm the conspiracy guy, right? Oh, it's another one of those damn fucking conspiracies that you always talk about, you know? And it's like, okay, but a lot of those aren't coming true. It's just that you're not able to see that because you're plugged into, you know, whatever news outlet that's not telling you the truth. Did you here in the UK what British school children did? When they brought out the lateral flow tests that are like the little pregnancy tests where you get the lines on them. And these were issued to every school across the UK because we had this policy that if one pupil was found positive, and this is probably the Delta, but, it, you know, it's, it's quite recent, the last six months or so. So they issued every school, or pretty much every parent and teacher, with thousands and thousands of these little rapid flow tests. And the idea was that one kid was ill, all 30 kids from the same class had to go home. This was a nightmare because then all the parents of 30 kids also couldn't go to work. So that meant there weren't people manufacturing food. There weren't people uh, picking vegetables. There weren't people driving trucks. There weren't people doing all these things. And all these shortages obviously occur. So the British government, in its wisdom, decided, "Ah, let's get these new tests. Everybody can test. We don't need to send 30 people home. We can just send home the ones that are ill. So the British kids decided to get coca-cola and orange juice not together and try dropping it on this test and it made false positives which the kids loved they could stay off school easy <laughs> i just dropped coca-cola on my test yeah. uh, they are i mean i'm not i'm not you know i'm not saying that all of them are totally inaccurate but gosh i haven't heard much good things about tests other than they're a bit iffy Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're questionable. They're questionable. Um, yeah, so I put a. I saw another post this morning on Twitter, and it was of a doctor, and you can see that on my Twitter feed. And they did six drops of, of tap water, and it tested positive. And he yeah. did it. He opened it, right? Showed you everything, opening it straight from the package and, and the safety and everything else. And, uh, yeah, so, I mean, I just... Like, what can you trust? What can you trust these days? Is there anything? That is the problem. Do you know, this whole pandemic is so open to conspiracy theories or conspiracy facts that there are many, many people, myself included, who a year ago was a bit like, maybe this isn't quite what it says but not many people have gone past that to actually take time to look at some real science and listen to people who have views about well maybe the tests aren't accurate maybe these vaccines have got other stuff in them that we don't know about maybe my government's locking me down and making me wear a mask just to make everybody terrified and that it's not for the same reasons but those people that have which is a huge growing group um, are obviously finding stuff out that is life-threatening and not just life-threatening, life-ending. You know, you look at something like the databases of adverse events and deaths from people that have had vaccines, and you look at the deaths that we are told come from COVID, many of which have nothing to do with COVID. 
They just happen to be somebody who unfortunately has been very ill, who has COVID once they're in hospital or gets COVID for some other reason, which may not be tested correctly anyway. Um, and you start to mistrust your government, your health service, your friends, your family. And it's another thing with long COVID. You know, sadly, so many people that got long COVID, they've lost their husbands, wives, partners because their symptoms, particularly earlier when there was no way of testing, are so bizarre, so frequent, so inexplicable that you're just not believed. And so there is so much gaslighting, which has resulted in a huge mental pandemic of people who are now living or trying to live with rapid tachycardia, organ damage, being unable to walk properly, struggling to breathe, <coughs> nobody believing them, their husbands and wives not believing them, and they have nobody to turn to. And so suicide is now the highest cause of long COVID death because these people, like me, are so alone, so misunderstood, so gaslighted by the medical fraternity, and they just give up. Because like me, they're taken into hospital when they get sepsis or when they have a stroke or when they have a heart attack. But otherwise, they're just told, stay at home until you are really serious, until you can't breathe. Don't phone us. Yeah, that that's another part of this, this puzzle um, that, at least in the United States... You know, the story around that with the early treatment, the, you know, the how we got the emergency use authorization to begin with uh, was all based on on lies and deception. And, you know, the only thing that seemed to matter is profit and getting a shot into every arm of every individual all over the world. Now. I don't know about anybody else, but I've never, ever, ever in my life um, seen somebody uh, or seen anything, any organization, any entity trying to impose something like that upon any citizen of, of anywhere. Yeah. You know what I mean? And usually when you or have people... a lottery to win a million dollar prize for having a vaccine. Has that ever happened before? Uh, or giving free donuts for life at Krispy Kreme. <laughs> you know, two donuts a day for or, I a week. I to complain because the Brits weren't allowed to enter that one. And I thought, well, we like Krispy Kreme as well. Where's our donuts? <laughs> <laughs> and, and if it's supposed to be about health, well, that's the that's that's anti-health. Yeah. Right? Not you like know. build your immunity and eat vegetables. It's life supply of donuts. Yeah, get yourself some more sugar so you can cause more inflammation so we can hurry the the process. Give them donuts. Give them donuts. (laughs) Yeah, we need to get that sugar in them so we can, you know, can create more of that inflammation so it'll add on to the inflammation that they already got. And that way they won't hang on as long and we can get rid of them just as quick. So (laughs) this is this is one of the things that like just common sense. Right. Who did this affect the most? Right. Like who died? Who were the people that died or, or or were affected the hardest? Well, it was the older population, right? Mm-hmm. And most of them were, I don't know. I mean, you can say if they're not producing anything and 
you know, that they're a drain on the economy. I mean, I don't believe that. I mean, that's why we got, you know, all these things that we pay into. So right? they're a financial drain because the pension systems, which in your country is the 401k, many, many countries are in debt. No country is in as much debt proportionately as the United States. And one of the biggest commercial drains, financial drains, is the pension system. Hmm. And by getting away the people that will need the pension by getting rid of the older community and by getting people who are dependent on benefits because they've got underlying illnesses, diabetes or cancer. They're the ones that suck the financial system. So if there was a weapon principle, the first groups of people you'd get rid of were the people that need financial state benefits and pension money from the government who are sucking all the money off you. Mm. They'd be the first to go. Then it was the, the the then it was the groups that have been being attacked from, from as far as as far as since we brought them here, uh, which were the black and the brown communities. You know, those are the other ones, and so it just starts to look like okay. You know, I mean, there's just there's only so many coincidences in life, and and in and in one whole life. You know what I mean? How many coincidences have you ever experienced in your life? Probably maybe a handful, mm. right? And there just seems to be coincidences lining up right and left for this thing. Like, you know, the universe has just laid out the red carpet on, on you know, uh, uh, synchronicities for, for the pandemic and the, and the COVID yeah. thing, right? I don't but know, this, man. This is where, you know, you struggle because if you are – an intelligent, curious person who's not prepared to accept that all these coincidences are just coincidences, you start to look and you maybe go on to a few different websites that you don't normally go on to because you notice that all the big websites are being censored. And if you want to put a post on Facebook or on Twitter that says anything about your vaccine having potentially made your father ill or something, it doesn't appear. It's mysteriously taken off. People, even like Donald Trump, are no longer allowed to be on Twitter. And all these mysterious things start happening and you start looking around. But the minute you do, you are outcast with a tinfoil hat in the corner as some sort of rabid conspiracy theorist who's out there to destroy the world population. Whilst the government is ordering everybody to get back in their houses, get back in your cage and deal with the fact that we are in a preposterously dangerous environment like today when Omicron has been proven to be no worse than a common cold and nobody has been seriously ill. Nobody is in hospital. The hospitals have got Omicron cases from people who have broken legs and sprained ankles that got Omicron when they're in the hospital and they are being called the mass hospitalized. There's no such thing as too many coincidences in my book. Mm-mm, mm-mm. Now let's let's move into something that I know that you're really passionate about and you're really angry about, and it has to do with something that is 100% preventable, which is the deaths and the adverse events that get caused from not aspirating when you give the shot. Yeah, this is explain, a big one. Explain explain a little bit about that and how you uh, figure that one out. So obviously, we know there's a lot of anti-vaxxers who believe that we've got, you know, digital microchips or 
you know, baby parasites are going to eat you from the inside and all these weird ingredients in vaccines. And to be honest, some of them are just like, woo. And you think, this is just crazy. This is giving bad people a bad name. But increasingly, you start to look at the figures of people having adverse events. And those statistics speak for themselves that there are higher proportions of people getting cardiac problems, problems with the heart, problems like strokes, problems all relating to thick coagulated blood that cannot be explained away, that are factual. And some vaccine manufacturers, AstraZeneca, for example, pulled their vaccines for a little while because they were worried about it. But what nobody realised until much more recently, probably in the last six months, is that when vaccines started to be rolled out globally, and we're talking millions and millions and millions of vaccines, nobody actually looked at how vaccines are given. So you think about it, a vaccine has to be given intramuscularly. It has to go into a thick bit of muscle for different reasons. One, it's going to be less painful if it goes into nice thick muscle. Two, the vaccine itself is going to go and spread through this muscular tissue, which will make it you know, be absorbed and keep it in that location, all the rest of it. And also intramuscular injections, which have been used decades and decades before, are less dangerous because intramuscular injections are less likely to go into <coughs> Or so we thought, because we then realised that the CDC, the Centre for Disease Control in the US, um, the National Health Service, Public Health England in the UK, Pfizer and other maxi vaccine manufacturers were with their labelling, with their instructions on the government websites in the UK and the US, saying to medical professionals, do not aspirate when you give this vaccine. And simply what that means is when you jab it into the muscle, which has to be done quite jabby, instead of pulling back slightly on the syringe to check if there's any blood in the syringe, which would mean that you'd hit a blood vessel, which normally you would then take it out, choose a slightly different site, move it a little bit across, do it again to make sure you're not injecting into blood, you would be able to check that that person does not get a vaccine straight into the bloodstream, which is known from, you know, 101 medical to be dangerous. But no, we are under instruction throughout this pandemic worldwide not to aspirate. Do not check that you are injecting into somebody's blood vessel. Do not pull back on that syringe. Do not check whether or not that person is going to get the vaccine straight into their bloodstream. And people started reporting strange tastes in their mouth after vaccination, which is because when it goes into the bloodstream, it's immediate. You get this taste in your mouth from it having gone into your bloodstream. And so lots of research started happening. And sure enough, there's a correlation between those people who had been vaccinated, where it had hit their bloodstream straight away who had then gone on to have serious illnesses and death and yet it is part of the instruction worldwide from vaccine manufacturers and governments do not aspirate to me it might as well be do not try and keep your patient alive do not try and avoid them being killed because that's how simple it is if we have aspirated and checked we're not going into the bloodstream thousands of people's lives would be saved and if we change that policy tomorrow, we could save thousands of lives. But literally, while we're talking, you and I, Sean, while we've been on here for the last 40 minutes or so, I'm sorry, but there will be thousands of people who have been injected straight into their bloodstream 
that will either be seriously ill at this moment or certainly within the next couple of weeks or months will have serious life-threatening disease. The, the one thing that that troubles me is that even with all of the information, right, even with just if you look at VAERS, and if I'm not mistaken, and I got this information from a medical researcher, is that <clears throat> there have been more adverse events and deaths with this vaccine than all of the vaccines in the va- history of vaccines yeah. altogether. Yeah. And there have been other vaccines that have been pulled from from use for less than this. Yep. So where, I mean, you where's the, the canary in the, in the coal mine? Where is the, I mean, where, where is all the, 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 the things that are supposed to like, you know. That's the whole point, the whole point of having an adverse event database for giving people a way to report a medication that is giving bad side effects, whether it be an Advil, an aspirin, whether it be an antibiotic, you've got to be able to say, my patient suffered or I suffered personally when I took that, I had an adverse event. And those are there for the purposes of scientifically feeding back to the scientist and then finding there might be some other way they could do it that would make it less risky or feeding back to the medical profession that might say, oh, we're getting a lot of people who are losing their eyesight as a result of this treatment. Um, and yet, on Clubhouse particularly, I remember when I was first on it, and the doctors on Clubhouse, uh, anybody with DR before their name, would simply say, well, we don't believe. We don't believe adverse events. We don't believe theirs. Theirs isn't a good source. And if we were to go into a debate and say 1,800 people have died, according to this database, they would say, well, we don't follow that database. Now, they have a point in that you can't create a causal link. You can't say 800 people died within two weeks of being vaccinated, and yet some of those died of completely nothing to do with it. They might have fallen under a bus or been in an aeroplane crash or whatever it is. Yes, that's absolutely right. But the point is, by now, we've got causal data. We have got data where people, scientists and medicine, have sat together and looked at 500 reports of a gastric problem or a cardiac problem and they've wheedled out the ones that are not relevant and still we've got data that as you rightly say is over and above what we've seen cumulatively with other vaccines so why is nobody doing anything about it yeah i mean you would one would have to come to their own conclusions because absent absence of information what do people do we start to draw conclusions as to what, you know, what it could be and why, why is it? And then that's where conspiracy theories end up, you know, going, going mad or going awry, going left when they should be going right. Uh, That's where they're born when, when there's not information and there's not transparency in a system that system that there should be malfunction here. Jesus Christ. What happened? Green screens. (laughs) <laughs> my green screen started to follow me but you couldn't you just can't see it because i have us zoomed in <laughs> uh so there was one thing that i was gonna mention about what what you were talking about it just slipped my mind um i wish i would remember because it, it was a good point as to well i'm around um, for the next couple of hours you're gonna pull me in and do it 
No, that's, uh, that's, that's, I think we're, I think we're pretty good. Um, it's, uh, you know, the bottom line is, is we're, we're in times right now that are, are completely different from any time that we've ever been in. And I mean, we haven't even talked about Australia or New Zealand yet. And, you know, that's a whole, that could be a whole nother, uh, thing there. I mean, especially after the pictures that I saw from Michael's uh, PTR today about how they were going around. Um, and I actually, I took a picture of it. I, I screenshotted it because I was like, it doesn't even look from the, like, it doesn't look like it's even from this era. That picture looked like something that World either was II, in yeah, World yeah. War Two, Napoleonic, yeah. you know what I mean? Just, it just didn't look like it was yesterday. Uh, or last evening, whenever it was, you know, uh, and, and to reference this and let you guys give a little context to it, it was a picture of um, police officers in March in formation holding uh, torches, I mean, fire torches, like old day torches, and walking, making sure, well, what is what, uh, curfew was being uh, adhered to? Yeah. I mean, what? Where Where are we? You know, and that's happening in Australia. That's what that was, right? Yeah, but I mean, I have said this. I find it a bit curious. I don't know if it's because Americans don't look at the UK as being significant, but we've had quarantine camps in the UK for months. Every airport now has, the airport car park has a barbed wire fence around it, okay? And uh, London Gatwick and London Heathrow are two most incoming international airports. When you fly into the airport, if you have been through a country that has been designated a red zone by our government, or even if you pass through that country, when you come into land, you are escorted with a security guard. You and your family are taken to one of these hotel airports where there are four different CCTV cameras from every angle in every corridor. You are allocated a room which you are never allowed out of because the cameras are on you without being told, being uh, called to on a megaphone type thing on the system that says your half hour break will start in 10 minutes. Prepare to leave your room. You are fed what you are given, which pretty much looks like slop. And when you do go outside in the exercise interval, like prison camps, you are marched. You are told to go in a clockwise direction. You are marched around a car park of a hotel, which now has barbed wire around it, by security guards wearing high-vis security stuff. And literally, if you go to the edge of that car park where the barbed wire is, where your parents in a car have pulled up alongside to see you and say hi, you are pulled away. You are not allowed to talk to them. And you pay for that. You pay for a four or five star hotel to be put in that condition for seven to 10 days, usually 10 days, where you are not allowed any contact with anybody else. And you are in your room with your kids and your wife, fed what they want to feed you and not allowed out for exercise unless it's time and they are going to march you around. And that's been in the UK for months. It's not. Yeah, I I didn't know that. Um, And it to me by doing this and by creating these and people get into them, you start creating conditioning where people don't. Okay. So if you do that enough and people experience that enough, yeah, it's not going to seem out of place when it becomes regular everyday 
part of society and living where you are marched from here to there to there to there. You know what I mean? It's just, it, it's, it's, it's normalizing it. Government are becoming the CCP. It's as though they want us to conform, <clears throat> to do everything we're told, to stay in the house, to not eat this, to not do that, to make sure we wear a mask so that we are constantly living in fear. It's almost as though we are going to become like the very, very conducive, conformative Far Eastern societies, isn't it? Well, they certainly own a lot of stuff here in the United States as far as property and investments. Mm -hmm. and, and, they, and I know that they do all over the world now. So I don't know, man. Is it, is it, is it conspiracy or is it fact that the social credit system that's being implemented what's that this is viral the book Search. that tells a lot of truth that has just come out this blows it out of proportion it's fascinating for anybody who doesn't have months and months of time to catch up on it bang one book that's what is worth reading like, I'm not even involved with it I'm not going to make money out of it I don't make money from yeah, anything yeah. I've lost my job. <laughs> but this book is out in the US and the UK. It came out about three days ago. It's written by Alina Chan, who is an American Chinese scientist, and Matt Ridley, who's an award-winning, formerly Guardian journalist in the UK. And it, bang, blows it out of proportion about where it might have come from, why it came from, who funded it. I just recommend it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. I'll check that one out because I know that <clears throat> I listened to the Robert uh, Kennedy Jr. Um, yeah. uh, what is it? The real, the real Doctor Fauci, or yeah. the real Fauci, something like that. He had a lot of a lot of information on that one. And speaking of of that and and Fauci, uh, there is a uh, HIV outbreak in Michigan, I think. Is it um, Michigan or Minnesota? Monkeypox, smallpox, HIV, um, shingles, uh, polio. Literally, we have all these bonkers illnesses coming out again. Why? Reactivation of dormant viruses. Why? That's what SARS-CoV-2 does. SARS-CoV-2 is an immunity bomb that goes into a body finds every other virus and bacteria that it's ever had and wakes it up again. So if you ever had a tiny amount of monkeypox, smallpox, whatever, in your genetic line that is still within you, it wakes it up and it goes again. Yeah, I, I've i been lucky. I haven't tested positive for it, and I haven't uh, – but I have been sick, um, and I have uh, been around people that have had it. And I, I, I think it has a lot to do with the fact that I've been taking uh, vitamin D supplements and C and yeah. pretty much the early treatment protocol from the, the very beginning, the, the, the profile. And I just stepped into the prophylaxis part of it with, you know, the uh, one of the, one of the things you're not supposed to have. <laughs> this is brilliant about Clubhouse because Clubhouse brings together some amazing holistic pr practitioners, nutritionists, people that really understand the science of, of nutrition and what the body does and how it does it. And if, if, if our governments really cared for us at the beginning, they would have said, 
build up your immunity, go and eat fresh fruit and veg, go and do this, you know. But instead, they just said, stay indoors and wear a mask. And with any virus, you want to build up your immunity. You don't want to get a cold. So you take your zinc and this, that and the other. We could have been told that, but we weren't. And now yeah. it is crucial that the body is protected as much as possible. We're lucky that as the virus progresses, naturally it becomes more reproductive, it spreads faster, but it becomes weaker. I mean, Omicron, from everything we've seen in the last 24 hours, is pretty much a common cold. It's not making anybody seriously ill. Nobody's been hospitalised as a result of it. And yet, all our governments have been locking us down. And we're probably going to spend the festive season locked in our houses with masks for what is a common cold. It's ridiculous. Well, the messaging is definitely uh, somewhat, like even the build-up, you know, because the one thing that, that I think that we do very well is understand we, we can pick up on patterns. Right. And we remember, you know, that's why you know, erasing things from, you know, is what they like to do. Because when we see something, we go, Whoa, wait, wait a minute. I remember that. I, I remember exactly when that happened. But if we don't see something to trigger the memory, the memory just goes away. Yeah. Right. And so I think that a lot of the stuff that we're starting to see in the messaging, the the borders shutting down, the travel internationally. I mean, we all we've seen this before, you know, I, and I don't know, man, is this part of that dark winter? Uh, There's Mr. no other logical way to explain it, is that there's no logical way for a government <clears throat> now to say there's a virus which is not of danger and it's not going to put you in hospital. And you've only got a 0.8% chance, even if you had another one of the variants, that you'd be in hospital. But we're going to lock you in your houses and give you masks. That just doesn't make sense now. It's not plausible. Mm -hmm. Yep. So hopefully everybody else will start to, to see the same thing. And like I said, I feel hopeful because now that my ex has seen that one chink, <laughs> yeah. one chink, one chink in the armor, yeah, that makes that sometimes that's all it takes is for someone to go, wait a minute, that something that like as a product, as somebody that produces products, why would you produce something that is as faulty as this? You know what yeah. I mean? And, and, and roll as the gold standard of testing. <laughs> so I don't know. I'm, I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful that, you know, we, this whole thing falls on its face um, at some point. Uh, and I, I don't know how that's going to happen. You know, there's you know, lawsuits, law, you know, stuff like that. David Martin, he's another person that talks about, you know, different ways that you can do this with the Fauci files and or the Fauci dossier that he created and the slide deck and all that. So, Well, you could buy uh, the Fauci coloring book. Go and color it in. <laughs> Seriously, there is a Fauci coloring book. Is there? And a coloring book. Well, he's got his own. Disney gave him his own uh, uh, auto. What is that? Uh, his own auto book or documentary? Yeah. yeah well, do you so. know when the pandemic first arrived, the biggest explosion in computer games was a computer game called Pandemic, made in the UK in Bristol, about ten miles from where I currently live, which was how to survive in a pandemic. And the Chinese bought it massive in the first few months of the pandemic. Everybody was online playing Pandemic how to kill off other worlds, how to keep your world safe. Really? <laughs> you couldn't explain it. No, that does make sense, though. I mean, you know, I, the, this thing was, has been so planned um, in certain ways. I mean, from Event 201, which, you know, which is done by John Hopkins. And when you start looking into all the things that John Hopkins is, is that 
organization, that institution that they're involved in. Yeah. But we, you we know, still haven't touched the surface with what stuff we haven't got out yet. Yeah. The, more, the more coincidences that are found, the more we find that, for example, the Wuhan lab said it didn't have any mice or frogs or animals in it. And they were all there. And the minute the Wuhan lab said, uh, we're level four biosecurity, but several months before they put out a private contract on the CCP website asking for a new security measure, a new air conditioning. And they were willing to pay billions for it because they hadn't got it. It wasn't working. Um, everything that seems to be, you take it at face value because the scientist or a media company said it, and then you start to get things come out. And then people like the vaccine manufacturers are sponsoring every single media program that you can watch and every news bulletin that you watch. And the fact-checking companies are owned by the vaccine manufacturers. And all of this is on paper and it's credible and you can find it out. It's not being hidden, but you just don't put the dicks all together. And when you do, you get so terrified because it becomes so obvious what is going on. But it's every day is a new adventure into the surreal thing that this is. And I just hope to God that people do have hope and laugh because that's when you're living on your own this time, this long, this ill, so many people, it's very tempting to give up. But Clubhouse at least connects you with people with spirit and energy and like-mindedness. Um, and it keeps a lot of people going, me included. I can see that. <clears throat> Honestly, I could see, I could see that. And for me, in 2020, it was just like that. Cause I was, I was single. I wasn't, you know, I was just, I was in my trailer, small spot, you know, it's, it's a big trailer, but I mean, as far as like having space, I mean, it's, you know, what, 400 square feet maybe. Um, <clears throat> and that was the only thing that kept me going too. Like I couldn't go anywhere. couldn't do anything, but I was interviewing and talking to like 16 or 17 different people every week. And so that's a lot of different people I'm able to talk to and have conversations with. And it didn't feel lonely. Like I felt like I was still connected and Clubhouse does that. I mean, you see it it on my profile, you know, when I've been accused of having ulterior reasons for being on Clubhouse, I just didn't understand it. But I realized some people did and some people are on it for commercial reasons or raising their brand or their profile. And they've got PayPal's on their accounts. I'm like, what's going on? Um, but I now put it openly on my account. I joined it for loneliness because I was so alone, so isolated. Obviously, you know, my two family members have walked out on me, given up on me. Um, I'd come out of a nine-year relationship, so I'd lost most of my social group anyway. And other than two little dogs that I adore, you know, there have been many nights where I was close to do something I shouldn't. And no amount of Prozac can get you out of that. But Prozac doesn't give you communication with like-minded adults and that's what clubhouse has done that's why it's so important well i'm glad you're still here so am i and <laughs> looking looking forward to, to to hearing more of you on clubhouse Thank and you. maybe back on the show again um you know there's definitely lots to talk about and definitely more to catch up on as things reveal themselves as in the coming days <laughs> you know i uh, somebody uh, gave me a, or I heard a, another theory and it made a lot of sense too. You know, it's let's give them the Christmas 
that way and it's not really give them the Christmas because the way that you decode all of these uh, things that come at us is you find the opposite of what's actually being told to you. So if they say give them their Christmas, no, it means give us our Christmas so they can spend all their money and we can make our profit before we lock them back down again from March, yeah, you know, February, so. March, you know. So I, I, and for anybody listening, that's what you really have to do. You have to take what the messaging is seek out what the opposite of that is and see if that's true first <laughs> and then and then move on to it at least that's how i feel because it's usually you know the reality that we all share sometimes is definitely inverted you know it's not reality when the front page of the british papers yesterday had headlines shortage of santas <laughs> shortage of santas there aren't huh? enough people to play santa Oh no. <laughs> That's how daft it is. That's how daft. Don't take it too seriously, guys. Just stay strong, carry on. And if you can go on Clubhouse or something similar, you'll find a lot of like mated people. And if nothing else, you'll find out stuff that you're amazed at and you'll have a good laugh. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Now are, is it still is it still invite only on Clubhouse? Do you have to get an no, invite or no, can you just download the app? Just go onto the app store or the Play Store or whatever it is you've got on your device. You can run it on a computer or a phone. Mm-hmm. And it's just free to join. Yeah, the club deck is actually pretty cool on a computer. Yeah. Uh you can do all kinds of different stuff with it. Um so the only thing I don't like about it is it can't I can't I can't play from my computer. Like it won't mix the two. So I have to have clubhouse on my, on my phone going. Subdeck is not owned by clubhouse. They're not affiliated in a commercial way. So they don't, they're not built to connect. Yeah. So that's, that's, that was my issue with it. But sometimes I'll go on there. Just depends. So where can everybody find you if uh, you want to be found? Yeah. So, um, it's pretty open. If you, uh, call uh on any social media platform nick moneypenny nic which is my proper name and moneypenny which is the name that everyone calls me and that came from working in the city because i was nicknamed moneypenny um nick moneypenny is pretty much on instagram twitter uh facebook pinterest reddit everywhere (laughs) even youtube and tiktok but i started those to make myself laugh to keep myself motivated in lockdown so there's some pretty silly videos that i do as well because i do some comedy as well as serious stuff well awesome awesome i appreciate it and uh, i appreciate you giving me your time and and sharing your story with me um i wasn't expecting that but definitely um you know i i appreciated the honesty and uh, the vulnerability that you were able to show and uh yeah just makes me even a bigger fan of you <laughs> thanks sean Thank you to everybody else that's bothered to watch this far in as well. I'm sending love. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And then all of that information will be available in the show notes and the description of wherever this lands uh, on my uh, platforms, You know, whether it's the uh, podcast platforms or Odyssey or YouTube. Uh, YouTube, it won't, uh, this won't be on YouTube. <laughs> <I'm> <laughs> this, will not be on, this will not be on YouTube, but you'll find it on Odyssey. So, yeah, thank you, and I appreciate you, you. and look forward to hearing more from you on Clubhouse. And with that, everybody, um, as usual, keep it 100. Stay true to yourself. Everything else is just noise. 
You've been listening to the Nowhere to Go But Up podcast. Sean is a single dad, a union blue collar guy, and he spent time in federal and state prison for drug trafficking and fraud. When he was released from prison in 2006, all he had was the clothes on his back, a bag of mail, and some paperwork. Since then, he's turned his life around and shares the struggles and successes on this podcast. We hope you enjoyed the show, and we hope you were moved to connect to the show. Book a guest spot. For merch, Patreon, PayPal, and social media links, go to linktr.ee slash nowhere to go but up. On Instagram at nowhere to go but up now. On Twitter at but up now. On the YouTube channel at nowhere to go but up podcast. See you next time.